Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalms chapter 127, verses 1 through 5. And if you'd like to follow along in a pew Bible, please turn to page 218, uh, excuse me, 518. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 127, beginning with verse 1, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toll, for he gives to his beloved sheep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This morning, we're finishing up, concluding series we've been in through the Psalms, the songs of the shepherd king, different selected uh, psalms. Uh, And these psalms that we've studied together have shown us, in many ways, the heart of our Savior, the heart of our Lord as a shepherd. And I pray that the psalms that we've studied over the last few weeks have met us in our lives, that they've really been where the rubber hits the road. We've, we've seen the, the reality of, of disappointment, how the Lord shepherds us through that. And we've seen great joy and great thanksgiving at all the Lord does and how he is our shepherd. So today we're going to end our study, our series together by looking at the sovereignty of our shepherd. But before we study together, won't you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, you are sovereign, and we can scarcely comprehend what that means. So Lord, as we study together this morning, would you open our eyes to see you more, to understand your sovereignty, your, your plans, your protection, your, your goodness to us. So Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Christ, our shepherd. Amen. Now, have you ever wondered how the pyramids were built. How about the Great Wall of China? Or or Stonehenge, perhaps? Have you ever wondered how those giant pillars in the cross stones got set up where they were? How were they they moved? How were they lifted into place? Have you even considered the fact that no one really knows with 100% certainty what Stonehenge even is? We know why the Great Wall of China was built. It was to keep the the Mongolian armies out of China, or the the pyramids were tombs and and places of reverence for the pharaohs. Uh, But Stonehenge? Perhaps it's a calendar. Perhaps it's a place of of spiritual and astrological significance because at some points throughout the year, the the moon and the sun line up with it perfectly. Uh, Maybe it's a funeral site, and there's good evidence for all three of those options, but how in the world did those stones even 
get there because that kind of rock doesn't form naturally in England where it's located. The closest they could have gotten there from is Wales. So some people speculate that uh, glaciers moved them in in decades and centuries past. Uh, Recently, a theory has, has come about that there were wooden ball bearings that were placed in front of it continually, and so people were dragging it across these ball bearings all the way from Wales. In legend past, Merlin, the great wizard of King Arthur's court, had giants set them up and erect them, so who knows how they got there. From what little we know of Stonehenge, I know a couple of things for certain. They didn't get there by accident, and they're not going anywhere <laughs> anytime soon. And it's this idea, this, these, these resolute, unmoving stones, that's the idea of sovereignty, isn't it? Because when we say that the Lord is sovereign, we mean he doesn't do anything by accident, and that nothing in all of creation can stop what he wants to happen. And nothing can undo what the Lord has decreed should happen. If the Lord wants something to come about, it will. It's that simple. Because he is that powerful, and he is that sovereign. If the Lord does not want something to happen, it won't. It's that simple, because he is that powerful, and he is that sovereign. So as we look at our passage this morning, we see King Solomon, the author of this psalm, and the son of David, writing about the sovereign nature of God. And through this short psalm, we will see the Lord's sovereignty in several different ways. We'll see his sovereignty in his plans, sovereignty in his protection, his family, sovereignty in his victory, and sovereignty in his blessing. And that's a lot, but the Lord's sovereign plans, sovereign protection, sovereign family, sovereign victory, sovereign blessing. We're not going to be able to spend equal amounts of time on all these points, so we're going to focus on the first three, but I, I couldn't in good conscience, conscience leave out the Lord's victory and the Lord's blessing. So we're going to focus on the first three, but it's a rich, deep psalm. So as we turn to verse 1 where we read, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In terms of looking at sovereignty, we could almost just stop with the first three words, couldn't we? Unless the Lord. Because that's the nature of sovereignty, isn't it? Unless the Lord says it, unless the Lord does it, whatever it is, unless the Lord is with it, it won't happen. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. But we have to understand here what Solomon means when he says house. He's being a little clever. He's being a little cheeky with some wordplay. When we read this, it calls to mind God's promise to Solomon's father, David. David's desire was to build a temple for the Lord, to build a house of worship for him. But the Lord took that desire. He flipped it. David's desire to build a temple and he switches it up and says, the Lord says, it's not you that will build me a house. This is what the Lord will do for David. I will appoint a place, this is from 2 Samuel, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest 
from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for, not, for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What a magnificent promise the Lord gives to David and by extension to Solomon, who's writing this psalm. How could Solomon not read these words of his father David and not hear likely from the mouth of his father and know that in some way this is about Solomon, that promise to build a house is about him. So as Solomon is contemplating building a temple, a permanent place for God to be worshipped, he's hearing himself as the fulfillment of this promise. But there's something far more significant than Solomon himself. Solomon, in his God-given wisdom, understands that this isn't about a building. He's communicating to a Solomon here that this has very little to do with a temple. The context of the rest of this psalm has very little to do with a building, has far more to do with children, with family, with the promised Messiah. Solomon is thinking about that one eternal king that the Lord's promised, the throne that will be established forever, that will come from David and from Solomon's lineage. And this is the plan, isn't it? This has been the plan all along, the promised son of Abraham, where Sarah was even promised that kings would come from you. But that son of Abraham that would be a blessing to every nation, that's the promise. That's the plan that God made, extended down from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David, and we could trace it all throughout Scripture, that promise to David and now to Solomon. What a thing for him to contemplate. So he knows this is not just a plan for a temple, not just a plan to build a house of worship, but these are plans to build a kingdom, a kingdom with a single king who will rule forever, and who could make those kind of plans but God? There have been many great dynasties throughout history. The Ptolemies of Egypt and Greece lasted nearly 300 years. We think of the Windsors in England today. But the longest reigning dynasty in history is the Yamato family in Japan. They trace their history back to the 600s BC. They recognize 126 different emperors over Japan. 126 different emperors, not one king who will rule forever. Who could make such a plan as this come to fruition? Who could ensure that those plans work out? Only the Lord. And Solomon knows this. Solomon knew he couldn't even build the temple unless the Lord ordained that it would be so. What a God we serve. Do we think about this aspect of the Lord? Do we ever consider that he is the first cause of all things, that he is so sovereign, so powerful, so wise, and so magnificent that nothing in all of creation is outside of his power? Nothing in creation is outside of his wisdom. There's no piece of creation that does not bend the knee to the will of the Lord when he speaks. Unless the Lord, full stop. But our plans, our own plans, are not this way, are they? How many of us have wanted a house that we didn't get or applied for a job that we weren't hired for 
How many of us sought after relationships that didn't work out? How many of us studied for a test only to get a C or a D or worse? Our plans are limited. They're temporary. They're, they're fleeting. And let's be honest, if we got everything we ever wanted, if all of our plans worked out the way we wanted them to, might not be very good. Maybe that house you wanted would have fallen down. Maybe that relationship you sought after so desperately, maybe they would have led you far from your relationship with Christ. Maybe that bad grade you made made you go and study and learn the material even better. Or maybe it led you to a different subject that you really love. Only the Lord in his sovereign plans can build the house. Only the Lord in his sovereign plans can work out all that we need for life and for godliness. But it's also the Lord and only the Lord that can protect all of those plans The end of verse 1, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's the Lord who plans, it's the Lord who decrees, and it's he that protects all that he ordains should come to pass. So you all know this image, the image here of the watchman. Think of someone on the, the city walls or the castle walls, up all night pacing back and forth, their eyes looking out for any sort of enemy attack. The, the castle's been built, the city's been built, and so you, there are people up watching for any enemies. But human eyes fail, don't they? Watchful eyes of the guards are defeated by darkness or some Trojan horse in the city, Falls. The castle falls. Their job was to protect, but even with that singular focus, they can't do it. We can't protect what the Lord has entrusted to us unless the Lord watches over it. So praise God for his sovereign protection. You know, I could almost comprehend a creator, God, not quite. Of course I can't, but I could almost comprehend a creator to understand that God in his magnificence could create and that's a very limited understanding, but I've created things. I've uh, written things in my younger days, and, I, and I've made some wood projects. And when I was younger, I built forts in my parents' yard. And I've, uh, there's the creative aspect that I, uh, that I have a little bit of myself. And so I can understand, at least from a human-limited perspective, that God is so much more and bigger than that. I've, though thrown away more pieces of writing than I've kept. And I don't have any forts left in my parents' yard. I have no idea how to protect all that, if I wanted to keep it even. So how is it that God who created everything that exists from the smallest particle of matter to the largest galaxies could also be their protector? But he is. It's God who sustains and protects. If God were not actively sustaining and protecting everything around us, then we would simply cease to be. Take gravity, for instance. If gravity were the tiniest bit stronger, we would have been crushed. And if it were the tiniest bit weaker, we would have been flung off the planet by now. But God is the one protecting us. We see that all throughout Scripture, don't we? We see God's plan was for Christ to come to earth and God was wonderful and powerful and sovereign enough to make that plan come to pass and he was certainly able to protect that plan. So he tells Joseph to take the family to Egypt to escape the infanticide that Herod perpetrates. 
Herod decreed that every male two years and younger should be killed, but the Lord had already sent Joseph and Mary and Jesus to Egypt. Elijah, in trying to escape Queen Jezebel, encounters an angel sent by God who feeds him and tells him to sleep. See, God's protecting Elijah from the queen, and he's protecting him from starvation and exhaustion. But Moses, in the very presence of God himself, God only allows Moses to see the tiniest fraction of God's glory. Because Moses would have died had he been fully in the presence of the whole glory of God. God sovereignly protects his creation, and he protects those who belong to him. Now, does this mean no bad thing will ever happen? No. That's not what the Lord's protection means. What it means, though, is that whatever happens, whatever's occurring in your life is not outside of God's control. I had a pastor growing up that he was teaching on this idea of of sovereignty, and he had us repeat, I'm not going to make you do that, don't worry. But he had us repeat, God is in control, and our response would be, he has a plan. And he had us say that week after week so that we'd get it and it would stick with us. God is in control, and he has a plan. And sometimes that plan, those difficult circumstances, those are the protections. It's those difficulties that are meant to draw you closer to God. It's in those difficulties that seem so bad, might be keeping you from something worse. So what do we do? We can rest in the sovereignty of God. We can rest in his plans. Because it's, it's not the absence of pain, it's not the absence of suffering, it's not the absence of, of difficulty that's, that's peace. It's the presence of God that is peace. It's the presence of the Prince of Peace that gives us that peace. So anything that draws you closer to the Lord is, is bringing you peace. Peace, that, that fruit of the Spirit that we studied so much this summer. This is something that is making us more like Christ, drawing us closer to him. That is peace. But how many of us struggle with worry? This is not just the, the fleeting kind of, oh, I hope something works out kind of worry. But it's that worry, that anxiety that makes you question the goodness, question the protection of God. It's the kind of worry that makes you stay up all night scrolling through your phone, reading news article after news article, thinking about how terrible the world is, what is becoming of our country, and, and where does it stop, where does it end? We just scroll after scroll. Some people have taken the call on that doom scrolling, even. How many of us doom scroll and we forget who the Lord is? We forget how sovereign he is. We forget that maybe the way the world is going is exactly what the world needs to go through in order that people might turn to God. That maybe God is protecting his church and his people by making them turn to him again and again, more often and more often, because it is his presence that brings us peace. It is he who protects us. So verse two, it's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil. But don't worry, for he gives to his beloved sleep. If ever there was a doom scroller, Solomon was it. (laughs) If you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, that's a lot of what the book is. 
Solomon is, is looking out at the world. He's seeing everything that's happening, and he's bemoaning the, the state of things. He's searching for meaning in his life. He's searching for meaning in his work, uh, in his family, in his kingdom. But apart from God, he finds none. Whatever there was to do, Solomon had tried it. Chapter 2, Solomon says that whatever he laid his eyes on, he denied himself nothing. There's nothing that Solomon hadn't seen in the world of that day. There's nothing that he hadn't tried, and his response is that all is vanity apart from God. But his conclusion in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes is this. He says, the end of the matter when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. That's where Solomon concludes all of this as he comes back to the Lord, but how can he come to this conclusion? Because he knows that the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. He knows that the Lord is with his people, that he protects his people. There's a little bit of wordplay here in this uh, phrase, the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. Solomon's kind of giving a nod to a nickname that he had when he was born. When he was born, the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to tell uh, David and Bathsheba that, that Solomon should be called Jedidiah, which means the beloved of the Lord. Solomon, in his wisdom, knows the Lord, knows that, at least at this point, we don't know exactly when this psalm was written, but Solomon has a special relationship that the Lord would call him Beloved, and yet Solomon, despite all of his doom scrolling, all of his looking out at the world, he sleeps, he rests in the sovereignty, the protection of the Lord. And if Solomon can look out at the world and still sleep and still rest in who God is, knowing that our sovereign Lord and Savior has plans that cannot be thwarted, and that he protects those plans as well, then we too can find rest in him. How many of us, as verse 2 says, we eat the bread of anxious toil? Our lives, are, our perspective is so clouded by worry and anxiety that we're not characterized by peace. Again, that fruit of the Spirit, that gift God gives to his beloved people. It's something that Spirit is working in God's people, sanctifying us into. As we grow to be more like God, more sanctified in the Spirit, we'll have more peace. Because drawing close to Him leads us to trust Him more, which gives us peace despite that, the ever-changing circumstances around us. Now, I'm not advocating that we stop caring. Hear me on this. It's not that we shouldn't care about anything else, that we shouldn't care about what's happening in the world, uh, that we shouldn't care for our, our jobs or our, our friends or our families or anything like that, but anxiously holding on to them, to things that we can't control because only the Lord can control and protect and plan these things, that's, that's not the fruit of the Spirit. So care about politics, care about what's happening in the world, about your work, but, but in all of it, trust God. Trust him and rest in it because he gives to his beloved sleep. That goes for family too, doesn't it? We can't save our own families. How many of us have family members? We're not sure about their salvation. Trust the Lord with their salvation. But notice in verse 3 where family comes from. Where do children come from? Behold, it says, children are a heritage 
of the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. This begs a lot of questions in my mind. A heritage of what, a reward of what? In the same way that the Lord builds, it's he whose plans never fail. It's the Lord who protects and watches over all of his creation. So it is that the Lord gives children. Considering children and thinking about his heritage and thinking about his own children, perhaps Solomon returns to this idea of sovereignty of the Lord. How can the Lord make plans for a savior? How can he make plans for a household to endure forever? How can he protect those plans? How can he protect them and us from everything so that his purposes can never be stopped? And this this purpose, this plan for a king to rule forever, for a house to be built through Solomon, what a gift. What a heritage that Solomon has. What a reward. But I struggle with this one because I don't have children. Are we not rewarded, those of us who don't have children? Have we no part of this heritage of the Lord? Maybe are we even being punished for something? I had to wrestle with that. But I don't think that's what Solomon is getting at. Solomon is, he's marveling at God. He's marveling at this promise to his father, David. He's marveling that promise would come to him as well. Solomon's acknowledging that God is sovereign over families. Now, biologically, we know how a child is formed. We know from uh, biology what happens when a child is born, but the life of a child, the soul of a child, how does that happen? It's the Lord, unless the Lord. Those among, of, uh, those among us who are parents, I'm sure you would all look at your children and acknowledge how wonderful Acknowledge what a blessing your children are. And I do the same thing when I see the children in our nursery downstairs. When I see uh, my nieces and my nephews, I think what a blessing they are. I have no doubt uh, that all of you know what a gift children are. No doubt of that. But I want to encourage those of you who don't have children that this blessing is not far from you either. And here's why. First Timothy 5, in regards to older men, Paul writes, encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. In the same way, Christ, when his uh, family came and someone reports to him that his mother and brothers have come to see him, this is Jesus', this is Jesus reply. He says, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I want to be careful because God does call us to care for our family. And one of the things that in this cultural day and age that I think really separates the church and, and believers from the rest of the world is how we care for our biological families when we care for our children well and teach them the things of the Lord and when we care for family members who need help, that's one thing that that the world can look at and go, there's something different there. They're following Christ, caring for their family differently. So I don't want to gloss over that because that is true. But when we read passages like 1 Timothy 5 and, and Matthew where Christ speaks about his disciples as his family, Our family, for those of us that belong to the Lord, 
are those that belong to the Lord. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, he examines in this book life and, and how to live it and how we should follow the Lord in it, but it's set in the afterlife, and he's being guided through the afterlife, getting ever closer to God along the way. But along this journey, he sees this magnificent parade in honor of a woman that Lewis didn't recognize. And so Lewis and his guide have a conversation about that parade. Lewis asks who it is, and this is the reply. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. Well, she seems to be a person of particular importance. Aye, she was one of the great ones. And who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and her daughters. She must have had a very large family. Every young man or boy that met her became her son. Even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door, every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? The reply, her mother was of a different kind. Her, her motherhood, excuse me, her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them all the more. What's Lewis driving at? Here, Here's this woman who's celebrated in heaven because she's treated every child that she's ever met with the love of a mother. She's treated every person she's ever met as if they were part of her family. And then they went back to their own natural families, loving them more. So yes, it is the Lord who gives children. It's he who has the plan. It's he who protects. It's he who gives children. But that does not mean that those of us without children aren't part of that Plan. It doesn't mean we're out of favor with the Lord. It means that we have a different sort of family. It means that we can trust and rest in him as the great provider for our family. Solomon's uh, idea of family here gets doubled down in, in verse 4, doesn't it? Verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Children are a blessing. They're invigorating, they're life-giving to be around, if not exhausting in all of that life-giving energy that they have. Raising children is no easy task, but children are a blessing from God. But like arrows in the hand of a warrior, our text says, these are the tools for battle, the tools of, of strength. Arrows are what you use, at least in Solomon's day, they're what you use to win a war. The more arrows you have, the more shots you can take, the greater your victory. This is strength. This is might. And while we know that children are a blessing, keep in mind the context of this psalm. Solomon's contemplating the blessing and the promise of the Lord given to David. Solomon's contemplating that children are a heritage from the Lord. He's contemplating the eternal king, the one who will sit on the throne forever. So if children are strength, how much more is this true of Christ? When we see the Son of God raised up in victory, if ever there was a son who was strength, it's Christ. If David, who was prevented from building a temple because he was a man of war, how magnificent would it be that his heir, Jesus, the Son of God, would bring about a great victory and that David would even prophesy, uh, that Christ himself would prophesy that if you were to destroy this temple, 
would be built again in three days. Disciples later understood that Jesus was talking about his body. See, it's in his sacrifice that Jesus' strength, the whole strength of God was displayed. That in his death and resurrection, the power of God was most perfectly displayed. So yes, children are strength, but in no better place do we see this than in Christ himself. God's plan from the very beginning was to see his son on the cross. There is a substitute for us, giving us his righteousness in victory over death and sin. That is great strength to make a plan, to see it through, to protect it, and calling family to be united together in the strength of his son. So verse 5 we read, Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them, with children. And isn't that what Jesus did for us in his strength on the cross? He filled his father's quiver with children of God. He gave us his righteousness that we might have the right to be called sons and daughters of the Most High. And if his quiver is full, who is more greatly to be blessed than the Lord himself? His quiver full of sons and daughters, he's called through Christ that promised, planned blessing of Abraham to every nation on earth. Blessed are those who have children, certainly. But are we beginning to see the picture that God's painted for us here in this psalm? He's a God whose plan was, from the beginning, would give up his own son, that he would unite a sinful, fallen people to himself, that we could be sons and daughters of God. That's a sovereign plan. That's a sovereign plan he's had to protect the whole time. And he protects his family. He's the one who blesses us with family, both biological and with our church family. And he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. What enemies could stand before a God like that? What rest we can have when we face enemies of our own, knowing who we belong to, knowing who our Father is, knowing who our Savior is, who through his strength and through the power of God was raised from the dead. What a sovereign blessing he's given to us in the person of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for who you are. You are our sovereign Lord and Savior and Shepherd. We thank you because we cannot comprehend how you would make plans, how you would protect them, how you give family. We cannot contemplate the depth and the breadth of your victory, and we cannot fully understand what a blessing you are. So thank you for the glimpse. Thank you for the look into who you are, into who your son is. So Lord, as we go from here to your table now, would you remind us of the strength of your son and what he did to call us to himself. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.